Hello, and welcome to the December 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, some huge political news in the United States since our last podcast. Donald Trump and Mike Pence secured enough votes in the Electoral College to become the next president and vice president, and the Republicans retain control of both houses of Congress. Pretty broad question, but where does this leave the LGBT community going forward, Art? Okay, but first, uh, to make a modest correction, the Electoral College hasn't voted yet. (laughs) Uh, We're assuming that the electors will vote the way their states voted, but there has already been one elector from uh, Texas who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying he could not in good conscience vote for Trump, even though he's a Republican. Uh, So he's going to vote for someone else. so we have this this very interesting situation. Uh, when uh, Donald Trump takes the oath of office, uh, he will immediately have the opportunity to appoint someone to the Supreme Court because the Republicans in the Senate have held up any confirmations since Justice Scalia died last February, uh, an unprecedented period for a Supreme Court seat to be vacant. Uh, it means that for... Uh, more than one term, probably one and a half terms of the court, they'll be shorthanded and unable to decide cases that would normally be decided by a 5-4, resulting in affirmances of the lower court without an opinion and without creating a precedent. Uh, So that's one of the immediate consequences. We will get that seat filled, and typically a president gets at least two Supreme Court picks uh, sometimes not during a first term. However, uh, Jimmy Carter never got to appoint anyone, and uh, George W. Bush took several years before he got to appoint anyone. So we'll see. Uh, there are rumors that Justice Kennedy might retire. Uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer are uh, both getting on in years. So uh, it is possible and highly likely that a President Trump will be able to preserve the Republican majority on the Supreme Court uh, in my entire life as an active lawyer, <laughs> uh, the Supreme Court has had a Republican majority, and it, it looks like that will continue. Uh, even though Hillary Clinton got more votes, which I, I always emphasize yeah. to people, that it's not like Trump has a popular mandate. In and that of sense. course, we should say uh, the losing Kennedy, Breyer, Ginsburg potentially means losing a pro-gay majority. That's on the that's Court. definitely true. Uh, at present, the five members of the court who made up the majority in Obergefell versus Hodges are all still on the court. Uh, Justice Scalia was a dissenter. The replacement of Justice Scalia does not detract from that majority. So one question that uh, a lot of gay organizations received in the aftermath of the election result was, what does this do to same-sex marriage? The answer is, in the short run, nothing. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision is in place. It takes priority over any state constitutions or state statutes or uh, attempts by the state or the federal government not to provide equal recognition to same-sex marriages, although uh, some states are still tempting fate. Uh, A case that uh, was decided uh, shortly before we made this podcast but uh, will be covered in the January issue of Law Notes, the Arkansas Supreme Court has uh, broken company from some other courts in uh, in ruling that uh, 
the same-sex spouse of a woman who gives birth is not automatically entitled to be on the birth certificate of the child. Uh, with strong dissenting opinions and with some suggestions to the Arkansas legislature to address the issue. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but the other main consequence of uh, Trump's election is the likelihood that executive orders issued by President Obama might be revoked. Uh, now, in the past, incoming Republican presidents have not necessarily revoked all of the executive orders of their predecessors. And in fact, George W. Bush did not revoke President Clinton's executive order banning sexual orientation discrimination in the federal sector. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens there. Uh, there are executive orders by President Obama uh, doubling down on the sexual orientation protection for federal employees and adding uh, protection uh, on gender identity grounds as well. Uh, there's an executive order requiring that all contracts for more than a certain amount by the federal government include a non-discrimination provision that, it, that covers sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, there are various regulations, guidelines, uh, Q&As posted on uh, agency websites, et cetera, et cetera, that establish a wide range of recognition for same-sex marriages, uh, that uh, interpret federal laws broadly uh, to be gay-friendly. Uh, I'd say the most important thing to look for in terms of a sign of what might be happening is what happens with the Supreme Court case of Gloucester County School Board versus Gavin Grimm. Uh, this case dates back several years now. Uh, Gavin Grimm, when, when the case began, was a sophomore in the Gloucester County High School who was transitioning and who went with his mother to the principal and said, Gavin is transitioning, wants to be able to use his preferred first name, uh, even though, of course, in school records he would be... Uh, uh, still under his uh, birth name and would be considered female, but uh, wanted to be treated as a boy, uh, was dressing and grooming uh, consistent with that, and wanted to be able to use the boys' restroom. And the principal said yes. And Grimm did this uh, for several weeks into his sophomore year, but then uh, other students and their parents complained. It went to the school board. The school board held some emergency sessions, and eventually adopted a resolution stating that restrooms should only be used uh, consistent with someone's birth certificate in terms of whether you use the boys' room or the girls' room. Uh, they did have some gender-neutral restrooms in the school, which they said Gavin Grimm could use. Uh, but he was dissatisfied with this result, and with the assistance of the ACLU of Virginia, filed suit. Uh, seeking a ruling that under Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, he was entitled to use the restroom consistent with his gender identity. And this depended on an interpretation of Title IX's ban on sex discrimination in, in education as including gender identity discrimination, a position that the Department of Education has taken following the lead of the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, in its interpretation of the sex discrimination provision in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And in the past, the Education Department has generally followed uh, Title VII precedents in interpreting Title IX. So uh, the, uh, the Education Department, although not a party to this case, filed an amicus brief, uh, initially a letter uh, with the district court, 
supporting Gavin Grimm's position. Uh, the district court initially disagreed with uh, the Education Department's position and f granted a motion to dismiss Gavin Grimm's uh, Title IX claim, but reserved judgment on an equal protection claim that he had filed. Uh, the dismissal and the denial of any kind of preliminary injunctive relief to Grimm was appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit reversed, finding that the district court should have deferred to the Education Department's interpretation of its regulation on restroom facilities and locker room facilities in schools. There was this regulation saying that schools can designate restrooms and locker room facilities for boys or girls, but they must be equal facilities in order to avoid discriminating on the basis of sex. Uh, the school district says that means we can tell Gavin Grimm, based on our understanding of whether he's a boy or a girl, which restroom he can go to, uh, which the district judge agreed with. The Fourth Circuit said no. Uh, what it means is we look to the interpretation of that regulation by the education department because it is ambiguous on the point. It doesn't clearly indicate which restroom a transgender student should use. Uh, therefore, under prevailing Supreme Court rules on deference to administrative agency interpretations of ambiguous regulations, we send it back to the district court with the direction that the district court should defer and to reconsider the denial of injunctive relief. Uh, so the district court promptly reconsidered. He had his marching orders from the Fourth Circuit, although it was a two-to-one decision with a strongly worded dissent. Uh, he deferred to the Education Department. He reinstated the Title IX claim on, on the active docket, and he issued a preliminary injunction, which he refused to stay, and which the Fourth Circuit refused to stay. But uh, the Supreme Court agreed to stay it uh, pending a filing of a cert petition, and that cert petition was filed, and it was granted in October. So the case will be argued this term most likely. It has not been scheduled for argument yet. I don't know if you, you saw the New Yorker had a little piece about the case yeah. uh, on their website a couple yeah. days ago, and the lead litigator from the ACLU said, in light of the, an expected change in position by the federal government, uh, that their primary argument in their briefing is going to be that there's just, deference aside, there's one way to read this right. statute, right. Um, no matter... That is their position. Yeah, so you know. that that's probably but, going to become the chief argument. But in terms of watching what's happening, uh, the uh, the school district proposed three questions in its cert petition, but the court only granted us to two of them. Yeah. The first question was asking them to reconsider the deference doctrine itself, yeah. which the Supreme Court did not agree to do. The second was asking whether the deference doctrine applied in this case, uh, specifically because the interpretation of Title IX that was submitted to uh, the court in a letter by the, it was jointly from the Education Department and the Justice Department, uh, one of their arguments is, well, that isn't a formal position statement. That is just a position taken in response to this litigation, mm -hmm. and it shouldn't merit deferral. Uh, but in addition, uh, the school district is arguing, as, as the district judge had initially found, that the uh, regulation it, at issue was not ambiguous, and therefore that the deferral doctrine didn't apply. So that's part of the uh, part of the question. Yeah. The second question was, setting aside the whole de deference issue, can Title IX be interpreted to cover gender identity discrimination claims? And if so, 
to require a school to allow a transgender student to use the restroom consistent with his gender identity. Uh, so question three, as to which cert was granted, goes to the merits. Uh-huh. And if the uh, Trump administration withdraws the Education Department's interpretation of Title IX, which they might do... And the new Education Secretary does not look like our best friend. Well, you know, there are questions about her. But uh, she is very conservative and a, a strong proponent of charter schools, comes from a wealthy family which has donated extensively to anti-gay causes. Uh, On the other hand, there was an article published in The Advocate the other day by the former co-chair of the state Republican Party, uh, Betsy DeVos, the designate for Secretary of Education, was the female co-chair, and this guy was the male co-chair who happened to be gay. And he said that when a state legislator came down on him and threatened to make a big issue about him being gay, DeVos championed him. And... uh, he said that she is not homophobic. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, I mean, she's not a free agent. She's going to work for the president, and uh, he may give marching orders on this, but we don't know. And, in fact, uh, Trump's statements during the campaign were kind of equivocal on, uh, on the issue of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. He claims to be a champion of the LGBT community. He could prove it by not rescinding Obama's executive orders, and he could also prove it by not requiring the Education Department to change its position. But if the Education Department changes its position, then the deferral issue goes away. And so that issue is moot, and there's no need for the Supreme Court to address it. But there's still the very live question, which is before the Fourth Circuit. You know, it, would, it would be remanded back to the Fourth Circuit otherwise uh, to decide whether Title IX can be construed in this way. And it's a very significant issue because we also have, as we're going to be talking about in the next segment, uh, a lot of litigation going on about whether sexual orientation is covered under Title VII. Uh, So this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, On the broader front, in terms of the future of LGBT issues, I think our bigger concern is with Congress. Uh, It's it's unclear what the administration will do. However, people with very strong anti-LGBT records have been designated as Trump's appointees for various cabinet positions. Uh, so, for example, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, which has been taking the position that anti-LGBT discrimination in housing violates the Fair Housing Act, that's a matter of interpretation. Uh, there isn't much in the way of case law yet. A new secretary who is not in favor of that view, could change that. It's not in a regulation. It's an interpretation of a statute. Uh, so we'll see. And, and there are instances like that all over the place. Uh, the Attorney General? Yeah. Shortly after DOMA was struck down, uh, for example, the Board of Immigration Appeals said they would recognize uh, same-sex marriages for immigration purposes. That's in an opinion of the Board of Immigration Appeals, uh, but it's not an opinion that was appealed by anybody to the courts, so it hasn't been locked in with some sort of appellate precedent. There are real questions about what will happen to the many advances that we had under the Obama administration that were not locked into regulations that would at least take time to uh, repeal or into court decisions. And in addition, of course, with Republicans controlling both houses of Congress, we're not going to get the Equality Act in the next session of Congress. And we might get repeals. We might get amendments to existing statutes that would set us back. Uh, Certainly, if 
the Republicans in Congress can pass through an amendment to the various sex discrimination laws saying that they only extend to discrimination against someone because they're a man or a woman and not to sexual orientation or gender identity, there goes a lot of the litigation uh, gains that we've had as well as administrative gains over the past few years. Uh, and as to that, one thing to watch very closely is whether the incoming Senate changes the filibuster rule to apply to legislation. Uh, in, the, in the last Congress, uh, the rule on confirmation of presidential appointees was changed. So the filibuster rule doesn't apply, and all you need uh, to bring uh, the question to the floor is a majority. Uh, the Democrats did that out of frustration that the Republicans were blocking the confirmation of judges and uh, other federal appointees. Uh, presumably, the Republicans are going to carry that forward so they can just ram through uh, confirmations of Mr. Trump's new cabinet and other uh, confirm confirmation necessary appointments without uh, the Democrats being able to stop them. Uh, but if they extend that to ordinary legislation, then we got a big problem. Might get the the RIFRA on steroids that they they yes the uh, this past the year. Uh, the First Amendment Defense Act they're calling it, which would create religious exemptions under a wide array of federal statutes. It's just like anyone who doesn't want to comply with a federal statute who can plausibly claim that they have a sincerely held religious objection will be able to uh, to not comply. And, and this, it, it, it doesn't just involve issues of LGBT. Uh, this could just explode enormous uh, exceptions into a whole array of uh, federal statutes and policies. And I'm hoping that uh, calmer heads will prevail. And we already have a federal RIFRA, uh, which was recently construed by one district court to mean that the EEOC cannot uh, enforce its view of Title VII over the religious objections of a private sector employer uh, channeling the Hobby Lobby decision. Uh, so we already are, are battling the whole religious objections thing. The other thing to watch at the Supreme Court, I believe briefing is just about finished on the cert petition by the uh, Colorado bakery that was refusing to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. Uh, and uh, a fine was imposed on them by the Colorado uh, Administrative Agency. It was upheld by the courts, and a cert petition was filed. So the whole issue of religious exemptions is going to come up again uh, before the Supreme Court. And if that cert petition is filed, uh, it may be too late for argument this term, which means that uh, whoever Trump appoints who gets confirmed will be sitting on that case if it goes up. So far, we've had pretty much unanimous decisions from courts uh, that there is no free-floating religious exemption from anti-discrimination laws uh, for religious observance. Uh, so... I don't think the Supreme Court will grant cert because there isn't a big circuit split out there. But they may see it as a, a recurring issue. Uh, and uh, you only need four votes to grant a cert petition. At the recent uh, Federalist Society meeting, Justice Alito made some comments that he's very interested in this issue that were sort yes. of terrifying. Well, he, he wrote uh, extensively on this in his dissenting opinion in Obergefell about uh, – how this is going to make uh, outcasts and outliers of religiously observant people. Uh, so it's an issue he's going to raise again and again. Also in the Martinez case, uh, he had problems with uh, 
with Justice Ginsburg's uh, opinion that a, a state university could refuse to give official recognition to a Christian legal society chapter because they exclude people on the basis of religion and sexual orientation from membership. Uh, and Alito wrote a pretty strongly worded dissent there. And he, of course, is the author of the Hobby Lobby decision. So I think that issue will probably be back before the Supreme Court before too long. Yeah. And the Supreme Court, as reconfigured by Trump's appointments, might disappoint us. We'll see. All right. We will take a short break, and when we return, we will discuss several important developments during November and the continuing push to have Title VII interpreted so as to protect LGBT employees. We are back discussing updates over the last month and the ongoing saga over the scope of the Because of Sex language in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Let me start with the en banc re-argument in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals for the Hively case. I was lucky enough to attend the argument in person. To give you some background first, the Hively case involves uh, a woman professor at a South Bend, Indiana community college, a state-run community college. She was a professor there for 14 years, uh, but a part-time professor, and she was kept sort of trying uh, to move up to get a full-time position. Um, but at, apparently at one point, uh, her colleagues saw her kissing her girlfriend as she dropped her off for work one day. And she says that since that occurrence, she was... Uh, treated differently from that, that point on going forward. Uh, she applied many times to be promoted to full-time and never was even granted an interview, despite having very good uh, reviews for her work. Um, she then uh, eventually was just uh, terminated altogether in 2014. So she brought, uh, she fought, you know, went through the process with the EEOC to get the right to sue, uh, she sued in district court in Indiana and got sort of a, a pretty uh, terse uh, dismissal from the district court judge in Indiana. And Lambda Legal became aware of this case and decided to take it on for her on appeal. As we noted uh, in an earlier podcast, in July, uh, when she, when, after a full briefing and argument at the, before a three-judge panel of the circuit, she got a uh, decision that reaffirmed the Seventh Circuit's sort of overwhelming precedent to this point, saying that sexual orientation claims are not covered uh, by the because of sex language in Title VII. But the, the interesting thing about the opinion was uh, it was written by Judge Alana Rovner, and she was joined by Judge William Bauer, uh, the third judge, uh, Kenneth Ripple, uh, only joined the the short beginning part of the opinion that said uh, we've we've got to dismiss this. But Judge Rovner, joined by Judge Bauer, wrote a very long, I think it was a forty pages of analysis, saying, you know, really looking at the precedent and questioning whether it still made sense, um, especially in light of the twenty fifteen EEOC ruling in the Baldwin case uh, that said changed the EEOC's long held position that. Uh, that sexual orientation was not covered by Title VII. Um, in October, uh, the full Seventh Circuit voted to rehear the case en banc with the full, uh, all the judges from uh, the circuit. 
Uh, there are nine active judges on the circuit, and I, apparently we've learned through this, uh, this case that uh, the judges sitting on a panel, if they're senior judges, are allowed to rehear the case on bonk. So there was 11 judges uh, at the argument. As Art noted in the article in Law Notes, uh, there are only three judges on this, the Seventh Circuit that are were appointed by Democratic presidents. Uh, President Clinton got two appointments, and President Obama got one appointment. Uh, so there was basically eight uh, Republican appointed judges on the on this panel, and three three Democrats. Um, so there was a lot of you know questions going into the argument about where people might stand on uh, with that kind of a, a lineup on the bench. Uh, but it turned out to be quite uh, quite an amazing argument to watch uh, on the on Ms. Hively's side. Um, the first half of the argument uh, was kind of a bore. <laughs> for Greg Nevins from Lambda Legal uh, argued for uh, for Ms. Hively, and sh and um, well, we, we we should we should say it was a bore because all the judges seemed to agree with yes. him. There was very little controversy yes. except for Judge Sykes. Yes. Um, now, Judge Sykes, we should note for some background, ha was uh, um, originally on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. She then got elevated to the, or uh, moved to the Seventh Circuit uh, Federal District Court, Federal Court of Appeals, excuse me, uh, by George Bush in 2004. And recently, over the summer, uh, Donald Trump put her on his supposed list of people he's going to choose from for if he got a chance to to pick a Supreme Court justice. So there's been a lot of attention on her since the uh, election results uh, as, the, as the person he might pick for the Scalia seat. And a lot of people walked out of the argument thinking she was auditioning uh, at this uh, argument uh, for that, for that uh, honor. Um, but anyway, she seems to have a very odd conception of how Title VII works. She seemed to say that Ms. Hively would only have a viable claim if she could show that there was a gay man similarly situated that had been promoted over her, um, which is a really, really limited notion of how Title VII law works. Well, she, she's saying you need to have a comparator. You need to have a similarly situated person uh, who receives different treatment from you because of a characteristic that is covered by the law. And so she was thinking if uh, they would promote or hire a gay man but not a lesbian, then that was sex discrimination because they're okay with gay people who are male but not female. Okay. This, is, this was her sort of tortured view of it. But the, the, you know, the attorney from the EEOC was saying that the law protects individuals, not classes, so that it wasn't the right way to at least... Well, you know, there are problems. If you, if you look through the case law under Title VII, there's a lot of harping on comparators uh, because the idea is what the statute prohibits is discrimination. So you have to show that similarly situated people were treated differently because of a characteristic, which is the basis uh, listed in the, in the law as, as uh, something you're not allowed to discriminate based on. So technically... If the, if the circuit wanted to go against us, that's the argument I think that would carry the day. Uh, what, what was interesting to me, and I, I wasn't there, but I listened to the audio recording later that day that the court posted, and anyone who wants to listen to it, it's right there on the court's website yeah. under November 30th of Hively uh, versus Ivy the Tech. Uh, Ivy Tech Community College. But uh, I mean, this was a solidly Republican panel, basically. 
uh, and uh, there were two judges uh, appointed by Clinton, one by Obama. Neither of them said very much during the argument. It was really a debate among Republican judges. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is how many Reagan appointees are, still, are still active. I mean, they're old enough, and they've been there long enough to take senior status, but they haven't. They seem to enjoy being full-time judges, carrying a full load, especially Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook, who yeah. are the two most outspoken on, on the circuit. And they both seem to be libertarians when it comes to social issues. Uh, and that seemed to come out in their questioning, at least as I heard it. So, yes, Judge Posner, uh, so basically the first half hour was allotted to Lambda Legal, and the EEOC attorney had five minutes. And then the attorney for the community college c came up, and he just got hammered from uh, the second he was came to the, to the podium uh, until he, he was able to sit down by a broad array of the, of the judges. But starting with Judge Posner... Um, who really who who was who wasn't always waiting for him to answer his questions because Judge Posner seemed to not see what was coming and sort of tell him I, I think that's BS. Um, but he said, you know, why are you arguing that a statute you know a statute's interpretation has to be frozen when we know that that's false? Um, and he was uh, he brought up you know interpretations of the Constitution that we all know have have changed over time. And uh, statutes. Yes, and statutes. I think the Sherman Antitrust Act was, was one of his main yep. uh, examples. He said, all right, that dates back from the 1890s, and the uh, people who passed that statute would be absolutely astonished, aghast, at the way it's been interpreted by the courts. Uh, it's, it's nothing like what they had in mind at all. The, the courts have built all kinds of doctrinal intricacies on top of this statute. And, in fact, that's true of Title VII as well. Uh, and I think Nevins made the point very uh, very forcefully in uh, the first half hour of the argument that Title VII has not been frozen and that in particular the sex discrimination provision in Title VII has not been frozen. Uh, and the Supreme Court at times has adopted interpretations of that that Congress disagreed with and reversed through amendments. Uh, so it's to say that it's been frozen and that it should mean what it meant in 1964 to the members of the House and the Senate who voted for it at that time uh, is just not consistent with the history of the statute and the way it's been applied. Uh, so, but I, my favorite question of Posner's, and it's the one you pulled for a pull quote in the in the thing, he says to uh, John Maley, the attorney, he says. Why are there lesbians? Quite an existential question. <laughs> and Bailey, I, I wasn't there to see, but I imagine he looked uh, pretty puzzled. Yes. You know, so what, why are there lesbians? What is this about? Yeah. Uh, and, and what Posner was getting at is, is sexual orientation genetic? Is it biological? Is it determined, innate. in a sense, innate? Is it an immutable characteristic as such? And in fact, Justice Kennedy called it that in the Obergefell decision. He called it an immutable characteristic. And... If that's so, Posner suggested, that must mean that lesbians and homosexual men, as he always says homosexual, you know, he grew up a long time ago. He's been on the court since the 1980s, yeah. and, uh, and Posner was born in 1939. So, you know, he, he was raised in a different age. You don't say gay, you say homosexual. So he says lesbians and homosexual men must be different than heterosexuals in some fundamental way that makes them a different sex. And so if you're discriminating against them, you're discriminating because of sex, right? 
and he was, was pushing little, that it was line. A little out there, but um, yeah. and we should note the other cringeworthy moment right after he asked that question came from uh, Judge Bauer, who you know made a bad attempt at a joke by saying lesbians exist because of ugly men. Well, the way I remember it is uh, when uh, when when Posner was making this point that it's it's probably genetic. Bauer says, "You mean it's not because of ugly men." <laughs> We should, we should know Judge Bauer was appointed by Gerald Ford. Yes. So he's been on the court. He's 90 years old. Yes, he's the oldest member of the court. But uh, the interesting thing is he's there as a senior judge from the three-judge panel, and he joined with Judge Rovner yeah. in her lengthy opinion arguing that the circuit should reconsider this yeah. issue. Yeah. Uh, so I think we may get his vote, yeah. uh, and we'll, we'll undoubtedly get Judge Rovner's vote. And uh, uh, Judge Easterbrook. Yeah, the other most interesting question, I think, was Judge Easterbrook bringing up uh, Loving versus Virginia and right. asking John Maley, um, how is this not sort of associational based on who you're in a relationship uh, discrimination uh, analogous to the race-based uh, associational discrimination that the Supreme Court uh, looked at in the Loving case, and he right. really wasn't expecting that one either. And and I think uh, you know Easterbrook sort of signaled where he was coming from when he when he said, "Well, the uh, the petitioners here have cited Loving and have based part of their argument on it, and you didn't even address it in your brief. So how do you respond to that?" You know, and Maley was really on the spot, uh, and I think poor Mister Maley got really battered around. Yep. Uh, another aspect of it was pointed out, and I. I've, forget whether it was Judge Rovner who raised this point, that the Ivy Tech Community College has a non-discrimination policy. This was the that, chief judge, uh, Diane Wood. Uh, Diane Wood, that, that includes sexual orientation. And she said, isn't it sort of odd you're here defending this case and saying it's not covered by Title VII when you, in fact, have a non-discrimination policy? And uh, so it's clear that the school is either claiming that there was no sexual orientation discrimination here, that... that uh, uh, Ms. Hively was not considered for a full-time position for other reasons, uh, which, you know, if this case gets remanded for trial, they'll have to have to prove that. Uh, or uh, they were just doing this strategically uh, to uh, keep from having to defend it in court because South Bend, Indiana has a gay rights law, mm -hmm. but it doesn't apply to state colleges yeah. because the municipality can't affect the personnel policy of the state institution. And, of course, the state of Indiana, as we know, does not ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. So uh, the only way that Hively has a case is if she can be in federal court under Title VII at this point. Yeah. And uh, the last question I think I'll flag, Judge Posner said, you know, the, the main reason we retain precedent is so that companies and litigants ha can rely on it, um, you know, in terms of how they form their policies and their positions. Uh, but he said, you know, does there, is there any reliance interest in 2016 for companies or, you know, employers to continue to, to think they have, you know, carte blanche to discriminate against LGBT employees, given where we are with, with, with that, uh, with LGBT people in the law? Um, and, and, you know, John Maley was really – didn't have a good answer to that question either. He said – Right. Well, it's, it's sort of hard for uh, for a defendant to argue that they should have a right to discriminate when they have voluntarily adopted a non-discrimination policy. Yes. So, so Ms. Hively is, I think, probably going to win this case. Yeah. I saw one press report 
uh, a reporter from the Washington Post who attended the argument who said that the main question coming out of the argument is which theory will a majority of the unbanked panel use to uh, adopt the interpretation of the statute being pushed uh, by the EOC and the plaintiff here. And, uh, I mean, Nevins, he pushed a plain meaning. He said, look, the statute prohibits discrimination because of sex. It's clear that when you discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation, you're really discriminating because of their sex, either on a sex stereotyping theory or on an associational theory or just the plain fact that sexual orientation is an aspect of your sexuality. Uh, so it's sort of inextricably intertwined. And we should, we should add that that position has been making headway in district courts. And the other point to make for this podcast uh, of developments during November, we're starting to see district judges rebelling against circuit precedent, which is unusual. Uh, most of the progress we made before now was uh, where we didn't have a strong circuit precedent against us. So a district judge could stick out his or her neck and uh, adopt this new interpretation. But during November, we got decisions within the second and third circuits. Those are circuits where we have circuit decisions, not on bank decisions, but three-judge panel, which are binding decisions in both of those circuits, saying that you can't bring a sexual orientation discrimination claim as such under Title VII. And we now have two district judges who said, uh, I beg to differ and who figured out ways to get around or to try to get around those circuit precedents. Uh, The first was on November 4th. Uh, Judge Kathy Bassoon of the Western District of Pennsylvania, who was appointed by Barack Obama, refused to dismiss a case that was brought by the EEOC. And this is the first case that the EEOC has directly brought against a uh, non-federal government employer. Uh, This was against a uh, a hospital in uh, Pennsylvania. And even though the Third Circuit has more than one decision rejecting sexual orientation discrimination claims, uh, Judge Bassoon said, well, look, those cases didn't face the arguments that I'm facing in this case. Uh, They weren't cases that were brought by the EEOC. They didn't follow an EEOC ruling in a federal sector case that laid out a, a complex analysis. They didn't explicitly consider all the arguments that the EEOC is making here, and I think I can do that, and I can refuse to dismiss this case. Now, the hospital will probably appeal to the Third Circuit, and it may be that the Third Circuit will say, until an on-bank panel of our circuit reverses course, district judges are not free uh, to overrule the circuit. Uh, but who knows? And then the other one is the Second Circuit, and the interesting thing, Judge Bassoon, who is a, an Obama appointee, is probably one of the younger federal judges. And this case from Connecticut is by one of the oldest serving federal judges, Warren Edgington, who's 92, district court in Connecticut. Uh, on November 17th, he refused to dismiss a Title VII sexual orientation claim, uh, in this case against uh, the Hartford Public School System. And he really blasted the Second Circuit. He said the Second Circuit, in its ruling saying that sexual orientation discrimination claims can't be brought under Title VII, they've missed the boat. They've misunderstood how Title VII has been treated historically, especially the sex discrimination provision. They've taken an unduly narrow focus, and they've hung their hat basically on the fact that every attempt to amend Title VII to add sexual orientation 
or to pass an independent sexual orientation discrimination law has failed in Congress. He said, well, the Supreme Court has warned us, has cautioned against relying on legislative inaction as an indication of legislative intent. He said, and uh, what Congress intends today isn't all that relevant, really. We have a statute before us. The statute adopts a principle. We can look at that principle and ask whether this case comes within that principle. And uh, many of the arguments, it's interesting, many of the arguments that were made and the questions that were asked by judges on the Seventh Circuit during the on bank are clearly presaged in the opinion by Judge Edgington, which came out about a week before. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating to read. And he ultimately came to the position that uh, since the Second Circuit has ruled more recently than these cases that rejected Title VII claims by gay people, they've ruled on the association issue on the uh, the idea of an employer discriminating against someone because they entered into a mixed-race relationship. He says the analogy is just so clear. It's the Loving versus Virginia analogy. And it's so clear, he says, he thinks that it provides him a basis of bypassing the old Second Circuit precedents and refusing to dismiss this claim. And it's sort of interesting that this claim was in federal court at all because Connecticut has a sexual orientation discrimination law and uh, the attorney for the plaintiff could just as well have brought this in state court and wouldn't have had to litigate the question of coverage, but for some reason wanted to be in federal court. Uh, and the only basis for federal jurisdiction here would have been the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was one of the claims. And Judge Edgerton found that the uh, complaint uh, allegations weren't sufficient to state a claim under the ADA or Title VII. So being in federal court hinged on Title VII. The judge wanted to keep this case, didn't want to dismiss it. He acknowledged that the Second Circuit actually has some appeals pending from dismissals by district judges I believe on this issue. Uh, it can be argued soon. January 5th and 20th. Yeah. So uh, we may be getting some case law out of the Second Circuit in the next few months. Uh, and also the Eleventh Circuit, I believe, has an argument next week. Yes, so Eleventh Circuit has happening one. happening all over the place. It's happening. Uh, the one caution I give to people about getting all excited about this is, one, the Republicans could amend Title VII uh, between their congressional majorities and President Trump. They could amend Title VII to just wipe this whole thing out, or they could uh, require or try to require the EEOC to change its position. Uh, and if the EEOC changed its position, I suppose it might abandon the uh, the case against Scott Medical Health Center in Pittsburgh. I was I was sitting in front of High Feldblum from the EEOC at the argument, and it, it was interesting from a number of perspectives because she was she was whispering how she would answer a lot of the questions, <laughs> which was sort of fun. Thankfully, uh, uh, no one else could really hear if you unless you were sitting very close to her. But it was right. pretty interesting to hear her sort of something that she spent decades working on her career right. to see this argument. But anyway... But I'm her not, term on the EEOC expires in about a year and a half. And, and, and she's not expecting President no, Trump to Trump want her to stay. Well, well, the way these administrative agencies work, they have staggered terms, so a new president doesn't get to appoint all new commissioners. They have to wait for vacancies to occur. Uh, but within a year or two, a new president can usually establish a majority because it is uh, required by practice and in some cases by statute that uh, no more than a bare majority of the commissioners or the members, when you're talking about the National Labor Relations Board, can come from the same party. So there are already some Republicans on there, even though Obama has been president for right. almost eight years and has gotten some appointments. 
and also he's faced some stonewalling on confirmations of some including of high. Yes, um, but, but we but, should note that I mean Baldwin was a three-two decision. Right. I mean, if he replaces one of those uh, pro Baldwin appointees with a with someone who's less inclined, you know, we could lose the pro LGBT majority on the EEOC. Right. Well, I think we we have to anticipate the likelihood that we're going to lose the majorities we have on administrative agencies over the next year or two. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the federal government may or may not be our proponent. It really depends what Mr. Trump wants to do. I doubt that this is a question he's thought a lot about. He he seems to think about things only when he's asked questions by members of the press. Uh, there's a lot I could say about that. But let's take another short break, and when we return, we'll shift to the Hawaii Supreme Court and another in a string of recent state high court victories for gay parents. We are back to talk about a unanimous Hawaii Supreme Court ruling that a family court judge made the wrong call in denying joint custody to two men who were never married but agreed to co-parent a child after they split up. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah. Uh, this this turns on a uh, statute in Hawaii called uh, about de facto custody. It seems that in Hawaii, in order to bring an action for custody, you don't have to be biologically or legally related to the child, you can be a de facto parent, that is someone who has had actual physical custody or has shared actual physical custody and has performed the parental role with the permission of the child's legal parent. Uh, So in this case, we have two men. Uh, They were living together in a committed relationship from 2009 till 2013. In 2011, uh, the biological granddaughter of one of the men uh, was taken by them to raise. Uh, the court doesn't spell out the facts as to why the grandchild needed to be raised by these men, but she was living with them. Uh, they're identified in the opinion as AA and BB. BB is the, the grandfather. AA is the grandfather's partner. Also living in the household was BB's teenage son. So I suspect that BB had previously been married to a woman. And a, had, modern, a modern family and, and had at least two children, yeah. one of whom is the parent of the, the child in question here. Uh, and so they're raising this kid together. And there was even thought of, because B.B. had legally adopted the child. Uh, they allow grandparents to adopt in Hawaii. And uh, they actually had uh, retained an attorney to explore having A.A. Uh, be a, an adoptive parent as well. But it seems they split up before that process could be completed. However, they did execute a written co-parenting agreement under which parental responsibilities were split 50-50. And uh, this continued for some time after the breakup. But then for some reason, B.B., the adoptive father and grandfather of the child, revoked the agreement. He said, I can revoke this agreement because you are not a legal parent. Uh, All right, so A.A. goes to court. And he relies on the de facto custody statute. He says, I have been the de facto parent of this child. If it's in the child's best interest, I should be able to have joint custody. Uh, The trial court relied heavily on the idea that legal parents have constitutional rights under the due process clause to decide who associates with their children and uh, suggested that to the extent that the statute 
would override BB's rights as a legal parent, it might be unconstitutional. And uh, he put a burden on AA in this case to prove that that statute was constitutional. Uh, so the case goes up to the uh, Hawaii Supreme Court, and they say, uh, for one thing, the de facto clearly applies here. I mean, it seems, based on his factual allegations, obviously it's just factual allegations at this point. It would have to go back for a trial. But the, the uh, trial court uh, was wrong to hold that there was some kind of constitutional flaw here. That, in fact, uh, when a parent has voluntarily allowed someone else to become a de facto parent of their child, well, that voluntary sharing means that the rights that they have under the Due Process Clause are no longer exclusive in the way they are for a parent who hasn't done this. And the, the idea is that someone who has not uh, been encouraged by the parent to form that relationship can't just come in from left field and, and right. claim uh, custody. Uh, but uh, this isn't like uh, the case of Troxel against Granville that the, uh, the trial judge was relying on, the U.S. Supreme Court decision, which had struck down a statute, I believe, of the state of Washington, which basically said anyone in the world can bring an action for custody. Uh, obviously, they're not going to get it if the court finds it isn't in, in the best interest of the child. But that could be over the protest of a parent. In, in that case, uh, the, uh, the father had committed suicide, and the father's parents wanted to continue a relationship with the child, and the mother objected. Uh, and under Washington law, the grandparents who had no uh, parental relationship with the children, I mean, the children had visited as children visit grandparents, but they, they didn't have any kind of de facto custody standing. So the Supreme Court said, no, that went too far in, in violating the mother's rights. But uh, the uh, Hawaii Supreme Court did not see that as in any way invalidating their de facto custody uh, statute with the specific criteria that had to be met. So in this case, AA is going to have an opportunity on remand to prove that he meets the uh, standard of a de facto parent. And if BB wants to raise constitutional issues, the burden will be on him to show that the statute is unconstitutional. Very interesting. All right, we'll take our last short break, and when we return, <clears throat> we'll discuss how four Texas lesbians wrongly convicted of sexually abusing young children in their care nearly 20 years ago have finally been exonerated in court. All right, we are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. The so-called San Antonio Four, a group of Latina lesbians convicted of child abuse, have been exonerated after two decades. Can you tell us about the case, Art? Yeah, this comes out of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in a November 23rd decision. It's sort of odd because each of the women had filed their own habeas corpus petition. The court issued four identical decisions. Uh, so, uh, you know, you could, there, I think there are several different Lexis and, and Westlaw citations, but we'll, I just used the lead one in the law notes. Uh, so there were uh, seven judges participating. Not, uh, two of the judges were recused. Probably they were involved at an earlier stage in the case. But of the seven judges, uh, five of them agree that these women in the course of the habeas corpus proceeding have proved that they're innocent and on the basis of actual innocence should have their conviction set aside. Uh, two of the judges didn't go that far. Uh, tending to agree 
with the, the trial judge here who found that the women had shown that if certain evidence that was tainted that shouldn't have been admitted, uh, that was uh, fatally flawed, had not been introduced, the jury would not have convicted them. Uh, so uh, two judges were unwilling to go as far as to find that they had proved they were innocent, but that's not the standard on habeas corpus. If you can show that there was evidence that was improperly admitted uh, that likely uh, affected the outcome. And uh, the, the court said, uh, these judges took the position, that the state's case was so weak that without this evidence, and it was expert testimony of a type that has now been pretty largely discredited from many of these uh, child sex abuse cases from 20 years ago. There was this panic that gripped the country. It, it frequently involved daycare centers and things of that sort, nursery schools, uh, with bizarre tales of satanic rituals. And, uh, it was just, it's sort of hard to read that stuff and think that anyone could have believed it and the juries could have actually convicted people on these bizarre allegations. But what came out in the course of the habeas proceeding uh, and as found by uh, Judge David Newell, who wrote for the larger body of judges here, the plurality of the court, actually a majority of the court, five out of the, out of the seven, uh, was that these children, the two children involved in this case, uh, their mother and father were going through a rather ugly divorce. And the father thought he could use the fact that these girls were frequently left uh, in the care of the mother's lesbian sister and her partner and were visited by this other lesbian couple who lived nearby and were very friendly, they, they got the kids to manufacture this story that these women had abused them. And so these women were framed as part of a strategy by the father to wrest custody away. And uh, for years there were attempts to get these, these girls to recant, and the father... Uh, had threatened one of them, if you recant, I will make sure that you lose custody of your children. Uh, it turns out that the father had made false allegations against various women over, over time of sexual abuse, some of which had been found clearly by in other court proceedings to be uh, in, incorrect. In addition, uh, there was one expert who testified about uh, the children, uh, the validity of the children's uh, accounts, and there was really no corroboration for that. And there was a, a doctor who claimed that certain scars on one of the girls was evidence of being sexually abused. And it turns out a uh, subsequent uh, review shows that he had misinterpreted the symptoms there, uh, that they uh, were not necessarily uh, proof of any kind of sexual abuse. Uh, so when you bring this all together, the court said these women were wrongfully convicted. Their convictions are set aside. They're expunged they, they, as if they never existed. Well, uh, these women got lengthy prison terms. And I am wondering whether the state is now going to be on a hook for wrongful prosecution. We'll see. Yeah. But now they're, they're just celebrating that uh, they've been vindicated. But it, it took more than 20 years. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty awful uh, story there, Art. Um, all right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you enjoy the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. 
thanks again. Happy holidays, and we will see you in 2017.